that paradigm shift of thinking about all the obstacles in my day that prevent me from sitting down at my desk and doing the creative work that I want to do are actually fuel for my creativity. Welcome back. My name is Katie Delbout. This is Let It Out. And today you're about to hear a conversation I recorded over Zoom with Jenny Edgar. She is a visual artist and the founder and creator of So Textual, which we talk about at length in this. And she also works as a freelance editorial and art director, which she's been doing since 2018. We get into that. She writes and designs so purposefully. Everything she does is with intention and poise. She's really creative and cool. And we talk about everything from just that, being cool. We get into what does that exactly mean to each of us. We talk about affect theory, reading styles, how we read, why we read, creative direction, and what that actually means. We talk about a book that I can't stop talking about, which is Chris Krause's I Love Dick, and having a person in mind when you are moving through the world that you want to tell things about. We talk about Adrian Linker and Eve Babbitts and her grandma, Nora Ephron, and being a narrative person and looking at your life as a project. She recommends books. She is fascinating. And I loved this conversation and I'm excited for you to hear it. It's a long one. So let's get to it as quickly as possible. Thank you so much for being here and listening. And next week, episode number 400. So feel free to dive into the archive and and thank you so much for sticking with me. You know, I know not every episode is the same and they're quite varied. And I really just appreciate those of you who tune in regardless. That means so much. And I know that's not everyone. So welcome if this is your first time or you're back after a while. And regardless of your cadence here at Let It Out, I'm really glad that you're here and grateful. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenny. Jenny, I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for for doing this. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Your work is so beautiful, you know, as as a writer and then visually as an artist. And I want to start with your freelance editorial work because you've been an art director since 2018. And I'm wondering, you know, how you got into that and what were you doing before? Oh, that is such a good question. It's really funny because I definitely came to it accidentally. And a good friend actually in LA we were having dinner at Kismet and she said, you know, I mentioned something about some, like, you know, something I had done in the past. I was mentioning like my, my years as a pastry chef, I think. And she was like, you've lived so many lives. And I'm like, I think that's true. I have lived so many lives. And one of those lives is definitely my editorial work in art direction. And that really came because, let's see, I graduated from grad school in 20, 2015. And in 2016, I had my child. I had, I had my son and I was a stay at home mom for the first two years. 
And I really loved that time, but I'm definitely somebody who needs to stay busy. I need a project. <laughs> and I'm always like, in. I'm very much in my head. And I kind of thought that maybe I had this entrepreneurial sort of spirit or something because I would get these business ideas. Everything from like, we were living on Cape Cod. I was like, you know, we should, we should make like this garden design business and, you know, we'll plant people's like vegetable gardens. And, you know, how nice would it be to, you know, for people to come up to their summer homes and have these vegetable gardens. And like, I had completely romanticized it and just thought it would be so lovely to run this garden design business. But what I, when I get, when I would get those ideas, I would buy the URL and I would like design the website and I design the logo and I'd pick the colors and I'd write the about page. And, you know, I sort of thought that I was doing this like because I was sort of business minded or something, but it took me a little while to realize, A, this is, this feels like a creative practice to me. And B, I think this is what I should be doing. <laughs> and so that's really where it started was, I was like, this is how I spend my free time. This is how I think this is what I'm, this is what I'm sort of interested in. And so you know, I'm a writer. I've always been a writer. I've always been really attracted to words, attracted to books, stories, language, expression through words. And so that really aligned. And it was just like, you know, I never thought I'd be interested in marketing, but I didn't really know what that meant so much as well. Like it didn't, I didn't, it didn't have any meaning behind it. And of course I think Instagram helped everyone think about marketing and become sort of their own marketer for their own brand. But I studied religion and literature in, in college and in school. So I was, I was a liberal arts person. So I just didn't have this sort of language or even really understanding what a career like that could really look like. And so I was just sort of on my own. And like I said, I came, I had the epiphany that like, this is my creative practice. And this is actually something that I'm passionate about. I'm really interested in it. And in my free time, I choose to do this work. And then I started doing, yeah, some freelance stuff. I got some small projects and was really working on my own projects. In another life, I was a baker. I started doing that when I was a stay-at-home mom. And I really just taught myself everything I knew. I did take some classes and things like that. I sought out opportunities to learn, but I really learned from cookbooks and just baking. And I ended up having a pie business on Cape Cod and I went to the farmer's markets and pie business. Yeah. And so a lot of my, you know, I really cut my teeth on that brand as far as the design and everything and the advertising. And what was it called? Kindred. Oh, that's such a good name for a pie. Yeah, it was really sweet. It was really, I mean, it was sort of like everything you can imagine with like the, this, I guess it was like 2016, 2017. And it was very idyllic on Cape Cod, like Cape Cod summers at the farmer's markets and just baking from home. And my son was one and, and two when I was doing that. So he was very much at my feet while I was baking these pies out of my home oven. Wow, that's the most wholesome thing I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really great. It was really sweet. So we ended up moving to Hudson, New York from Cape Cod. And very quickly, I met Rebecca, who's been my mentor and my friend. And she had been a creative director for some LVMH brands, like in beauty, luxury beauty specifically. And she really took me under her wing. And I sort of then saw was able to get like this insider's look into the industry and i was just blown away but i was also 
like, this is where I belong. This is the work that I have been doing. I just need some guidance. I just need some time to like refine. I've noticed because I'm an often an autodidact with what I choose to do, that there are definitely gaps in education, right? So it's like, sometimes I can do things that are super advanced. Like with baking, for instance, I once agreed to make this person's like 50th anniversary wedding cake for 170 people. And I was like, you know, I was so not qualified to do that. It was like a three-tier cake and I had to make it at my house and then put it in my car and drive it to the venue and assemble it. And so I did it and it worked out miraculously. But like, you know, I was really just winging it. And a lot of, you know, at the beginning of editorial work and art direction and stuff, you know, it's like, I am just winging it. And so the past couple of years have been really about refining my work and, and mentoring and learning. It's been a journey. Well, I think, you know, you're honest and self-aware and humble about that. But truthfully, I, I feel like everybody is faking it till they make it or, you know, Vonnegut's yeah. we are what we pretend to be. So be careful what you pretend to be, you know, like you just right. sort of figure it out as we go. And and there's a lot of imposter syndrome, I think that comes with that. But what's cool about, to your friend's point of having lived many lives, I think so many of us do. It, it's pretty rare to have one career and carry that through for 30 years. And I think those who do in the span of their career have many careers, right? If you're a designer all the way through, you've had probably many different styles and many different projects and many different collaborators throughout that. So it's almost like different careers. And, you know, I've kind of done one thing since I graduated college, but also I have about a billion jobs and, you know, make money in a billion different ways. And it's so up and down and unpredictable. And I think that's sort of what's unique about this generation and our parents and others where not only is our tendency to do that more in, in most fields or in creative fields, but that was sort of a necessity, you know, of living through multiple financial crises <laughs> and right. pandemics and, yeah. you know, whatever. So it's really interesting to hear everybody's trajectory and how different and the overlap. And and I think your background in literature and religion and then getting into the work you're doing now makes it so specific and unique. And that's what works so well as an art director or as someone who is trying to think up creative ideas to stand out essentially it's it's better than having a background in that i think and you mm -hmm. have such a clear aesthetic and taste and on your site you talk about the conceptual thinking that you do and coming up with compelling narratives and strategic execution and how you build brands and tell these unique stories that strengthen identity and relationships and create communities. Can you talk about the way you work as an editorial director and as an art director? Because those, even those terms, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that we hear about, we know exists, or I'll speak for myself. I have heard about, know exists for a while, but you do it in such a specific way. 
But it's something that to me, having never worked with an editorial director or an art director and a curiosity sort of a way of like, what's your job like? And then also, how do you do that specifically? Because it's an interesting concept for everyone to think through because, right, we have to do it in some way for ourselves. I think that taking art direction and the editorial direction, the editorial work together, that really is under the purview of creative direction, which I also do and enjoy doing. And I think it really boils down to, you know, I enjoy working with brands and founders at the beginning of their journey of building the brand, because that's really when they just have that idea and maybe they have that vision, but they they don't have too much else. And it's really a great time to work on that brand book and to really flesh out what they want the brand to look like. And that's everything from like colors and typefaces to reference images. That's like when you make the mood board, right? It's like essentially the brand book is the brand's mood board in a lot of ways and the positioning, like who's your audience? Who are you talking to? Who's going to be compelled by this type of visual narrative to start? And with the editorial side, you know, it's like, are you chatty? Are you more formal and sophisticated? Are you, you know, is it super friendly? Do you treat your customers like your best friends? It's everything from that to, you know, are you going to have a journal or a blog on your site? And, and what type of content are you going to want to express? And what are your marketing channels, email newsletters and things like that? And just sort of how you want to communicate with your customer base and also add value, especially today when it's so noisy and there's so many different places pulling for people's attention, you know, and arguably the world does not need another newsletter or (laughs) website blog. How are you going to add value in a way that's going to be you know, special, authentic to your brand, authentic to to your voice, the founder's voice. So you start with a brand book and you get it kind of all laid out. And that really just serves as a roadmap. You know, this is where we want to go. And so then as we develop the brand and we have the shoots and we develop, you know, make the content and get ready to launch on Instagram and all of those things, we have this guide. And like I said, I just love it. I think it be hard because it is conceptual and you are thinking about For instance, for my project, So Textual, one of the guiding references from the very beginning was Kate Moss in the 90s. And I don't know like what it was about that sort of like genre of culture or, and there's one like black and white image that really sticks in my mind. But for me, it was like, you know, I'd be describing it to people, describing my vision. And that was like the reference that I had. And I feel like when I say that, you understand the vibe and it is about like articulating vibes and executing them. And so there's the conceptual element of like, what do we want our vibe to be? And then there's the fun part of like, okay, let's put this together. And when you have a, you know, depending on the scale of the project and the budget and everything like that, when you have a team, photographers or stylists or, you know, other consultants and things like that, then it's like everyone's vision comes together. And, and when you see, when you see this, like it is artwork, it is creative work. It's a creative work of its own. And when you see it come together, it's really, really amazing. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about so textual yet. So it's almost, but if people know it, hearing it's not like a brand about 90s jeans or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it couldn't be 
less related to that image as the guiding visual. But knowing what the project is, that makes so much sense seeing it. And it's hard to explain that without you saying what the visual was. And I I think you, you really explained that in a way that helped me to understand it. And it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot where I always want how I appear on the internet or how I dress or how I write an email or how I see someone on the street to reflect the inside of my brain or how I'm feeling. And we all, I think one of the things we as human beings crave is to be seen and recognized for who we really are. And then at the same time, what feels bad (laughs) is being misunderstood. And I think that can often come just from my website, not reflecting my aesthetic of today, reflecting the aesthetic I had four years ago when I made it, or speaking of books and reading, you know, that's the whole thing with book covers, right? And yeah, not to judge a book by its cover, not to judge a brand by its website or but people do, you know, and, and we live in this world where unfortunately I don't like this at all, but people make judgment calls based on like a, what is it? Nine square grid of someone <laughs> of photos that they've taken when they meet someone, which is so silly and makes me not want to do it at all. However, I've met some great people through that and it's, it is part of my work in a way. And it's, you know, it's this really complex line. We're all towing and having to constantly push pull against and that is what art direction interacts with or creative direction and all of those forms that you described and and we have to do that for ourselves in a way so yeah it's a it's a interesting conversation to have and i think especially for someone who's so dynamic like you it makes for a mountain to climb to reflect that and and you do that that so so well and you know you're someone who lives such a creative life you're a visual artist and i would love to talk about your your visual art and most recently you found it as you mentioned so textual which is extremely cool and i got to attend the opening last month can you talk more about that project i know on the phone you told me it was born during some alone time that you had early in the pandemic, right? I think actually the impetus for it came when my husband was in the living room and I was I was doing something with the bookshelves, whether I was maybe just putting a book back, but I may have just been like arranging some books or something. And he said, you know, you really should do something with books. Like you love books. That's the thing that you have always loved and will always love. And that was really like a, a sort of a key moment because I'm like, you know, you're right. I, I do love books. And how can I do a project or a business that's not like a bookstore per se? And so that really got me thinking. And I was I started to think about the the community that I wish that I had. And I think virtually because, you know, I think what I was sort of yearning for is is we all know it, right? And this goes back to the art direction work where you see a photo of something, maybe it's romantic or it's it's just compelling in a way that makes you want to maybe be in that scene or to integrate a part of that, the image into your life. And I often find that when I see a beautiful 
bookshelves or even book covers or just like a book placed like in just a beautiful way in someone's house that just really compels me to want to to read but you know more than that it's also about having a lifestyle that prioritizes reading right so and that's sort of the romantic aspect of it where you have that time you have an open day you have a free afternoon to sit and read. And so that was really like the feeling that I really was intrigued by. And then yes, March 2020, I was at my house alone for for about a month. My husband and my son were away with family. And so I had the house to myself and I really just got to work. And I worked with a, a friend who helped me do the logo and I was we were exchanging emails and she was helping me articulate my vision and asking me questions. And it was just a really, it was like such a beautiful time because I think, you know, for many, of course, 2020, especially, you know, the winter and the spring, you know, it was terrifying and it was tragic and it was horrific, but the world slowed down for many of us in a way that it hadn't before, maybe even since we were children, where it's just the day, we don't know what day it is, what day of the week it is, you know, is it Tuesday? Is it Thursday? There's nothing to do. And that time for me was just so generative. And that's when So Textual came came to be. However, I didn't have a, you know, there was no business model. There was no real future that I was envisioning. It was just like at that point in time and probably for the first year or so, it didn't have anything other than this is kind of what what it looks like. And it, And I offered a mood board on my Instagram with just sort of photos of women reading. And it kind of gained popularity and it gained traction in a way that I felt, you know, there's something here. And how do I organize it in a way that I can create an offering that people would be interested in, you know, that would add value besides just a mood board? What kind of content would that look like? And what resource would that be for people who love books? You said that reading is too frequently thought of as a solitary pastime. and this project, so textual, can bring people together in a community of bookish creatives. <laughs> and I love that yeah. concept being someone who can't read anything without telling everyone what I read and taking a photo mm-hmm. of a page and sending it around. Is that your tendency too? I think that I have such a tight inner circle of people that I do share those things with. And for me, that type of sharing and that type of kind of like intensity, perhaps, has really only existed in my romantic relationships when it's sort of an attraction of the mind, (laughs) if that makes sense. Like that's when I can think of really when I was like, these references sort of became metaphors or they became like sort of the material through which we communicated, if that makes sense. So I would say now, when I do that, I'm, if I, you know, it's on Instagram, right. And so it's to everyone and yet it's to no one in some way, you know, it's like, I'm offering it to people in general, as opposed to like the specific person whose feedback I, I really want, but that's not to say that at different times there hasn't been that, that sort of relationship with the work that I'm reading. Well, it's interesting because I was just having a conversation with a friend about this, and this is a whole sort of tangent around social media and, in general, and also also stay with me somehow about what you're exactly describing of having that one person in mind to share something with. And I think yeah. we all have 
an experience of this where I call it the what they think of that syndrome because I used to teach yoga and in college, whenever anyone came to my class who I knew, especially if it was someone I had a crush on or a good friend of mine and they'd never been before, I would spend, even though the room was full of like 20, 30 people, I would spend the entire class focused on that person. And I would just look at them. And, and every time I'd like teach a good sequence or a, <laughs> a move that I thought was interesting, or my playlist felt particularly good, my eyes would dart to them. And I'd be like, what do they think of that? What they think, you know, which is so unfair to everyone else in the class. Like everyone else is just like, you know, and I sometimes feel like Instagram has been a place where I've done that before too, where I'll have a crush on someone who's there in some way or has the potential of being there. And that's the thing. Every Everyone in the world sort of has the potential to be there, even if they're not on social media, which I know a lot of people that aren't, they still have the ability to look at some point. So there's this pressure to sort of present yourself in this way of and do that, like what they think of that sort of bit. And I, I've clocked it with friends where... My friend Zoe and I talk about this often where we've we've seen our friends do it and we're like, oh, suddenly there's a lot more photos of themselves or they're mm -hmm. posting this thing that they think. And I'm like, oh, they have a crush on someone. Like, this is not for me. And this is for whoever they're, you know, kind of great gads being like, I want them to now they'll see me and now they'll know, you know, whatever it is. And and so I think to your point about reading and about like finding an, an intellectual match or having these conversations. I've done the same thing off of social media completely where it's you find something and I've gotten in these like long text exchanges with people. And sometimes it's so wholesome and it's so earnest and it's truly, there's actually nothing better to me than getting a text from someone that's not asking for anything, no ulterior motives. They just thought of you with something, a piece of art, a quote, a whatever, and they want you to experience it, a link, a song. And that has the ability to, to change my whole day, you know, <laughs> where mm -hmm. a general check-in message could potentially even be stressful or, or feel like too much. And, and so there's something with that. And then there's some, like a, a third bit of this is that it can be distracting from being alone with yourself or being alone with a book to even if it's outside of of sharing in the what do they think of that sort of a big way of just having in the back of your mind to share let me show you how i'm your intellectual match or let me show you this you know yeah. it's, it, there's so much it's very complex there's so much happening there so it's it's interesting have, have you is any of this tracking my long tangent yeah. yeah absolutely i mean i'm reminded too because we've talked about instagram and like how we portray ourselves and how we represent mm -hmm. our on instagram but and I know that this is the condition, you know, there's a lot of feminist writing about sort of the condition of women that we see ourselves through, you know, sort of like third person, like we wa we're watching ourselves outside of ourselves. I recently read a book by Fleur, I, I believe the pronunciation of her name is Fleur Jagi. She's a Swiss author. She writes in Italian, but she's Swiss. And I read, I read her memoir about her affair that she had. And she speaks about watching herself and sort of these judgments that she makes about herself when the man that she's in the affair with, in the relationship with, when he's not there. And she's sort of watching herself through his eyes in a way that really resonated with me 
because I'd say there's one person in my life who is no longer actively in my life, but has had such an impression on me that I'm often reading certain books or doing certain things or acting in a certain way through his judgments, you know, or sort of as though I want like approval (laughs) from him or just as though I'm still in conversation with him. And yeah. And yeah. And I think that's just so interesting. I mean, I, you know, there's probably some issues there that I should deal with, but it's also, it is also compelling to me that he was just someone who just had such a, a beautiful and very strong mind and was really impacted sort of how I navigate the world and especially my intellectual life. And so in some ways, right, there's always that other person in the room. The point that I'm making goes back to earlier in the conversation, you mentioned something and and I kind of had two points to what you said. And one was this idea of thinking about your life as a project. And Sheila Hetty, I was listening to an interview that she was doing. I believe it was the Thresholds podcast with Jordan Kistner. And Sheila, you know, in passing just said, you know, my life's, I don't think of my life as a project. And I was sort of like, oh, that's interesting. She doesn't because I think that I do. And for better or worse, I do think of my life as a project. And I think that's because it allows me to make sure that everything is intentional. And again, for better or worse, like maybe, maybe not everything should be intentional. Maybe again, it would be nice to just have an open day with nothing to do. But, you know, in a world where there are infinitely more books than I'll ever be able to read, I want to be intentional about the next book that I, that I do read, you know, and I think that's a really compelling idea. Life as a project. And the second thing I wanted to mention was this idea that when I buy a book or I pick up a book or when I go to read a book, there's this idea of who I will be after I've read this book. And I think that that is a motivation for a lot of the books I read. We talked about the book covers and that sort of marketing, but there's this idea, right? Like say something sort of crime and punishment, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to be someone who's read crime and punishment. And who is that person, right? And who is who are you becoming that person for? And in some ways, like I said, there's this other person in the room who, you know, I'm often in conversation with that does inform the books that I choose to read. Wow. This is such a fascinating. <laughs> I have so much I want to unpack with this because what you were saying about that person who really impacted you and is just sort of in in your brain. I wonder how common that is. Because I mean, I deeply identify with that and relate to that. And that's not always been one person for me. I think it's vacillated between a few people. It'll, it, it will change. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's like a friend that I have in mind who is in my life and and I'm just seeing a lot at that point, or I'm I'm communicating a, a lot with at that point. I'll sort of walk through the world in this manner of telling them about it later, or even almost in real time. And sometimes it's several people, and then oftentimes it's these people that are more similar to what you're describing that might not even be in my life anymore, or not in my life in the same capacity as they were. Often, I think. In those contexts, it's people who sometimes like romantic at some point, maybe there was something romantic or a friendship that felt romantic or whatever it is in in the sense of a closeness or a likability or 
I mean, like a kinship, I guess, but it's in your brain. And did you see The Worst Person in the World, that movie? No, I haven't seen that yet. Well, there's a line in, in the movie where someone says, I sometimes have conversations with you in my mind still, and they've been broken up for a while. And that hit me really hard when I heard it. I was like, oh my God, I do that all the time. You know, It's not replaying conversations that you've had. It's like having a conversation. And it reminds me a lot of I Love Dick too. I don't know if you've read... Have you read Chris Krause's I Love yes. Dick? Yes, I have. I feel like that this is this is sort of about that, right? Like what what's cool about that as a piece of literature is that Chris Krause is having this conversation with Dick who she projects, becomes a mirror, becomes a way for her to talk about art, becomes a way for her to... She's essentially doing what you were describing with this person who's in the background of of your brain. And, and I have a person similar where it's like, I do subconsciously run things through of what would they think of that sort of lens or think of them often in that way. And it just happens, but it's not really about them. And it kind of is like a muse, but not quite, you know, I think in the context of I Love Dick, Chris Krause, what's so cool about that project is that she was able to start writing. She was writing to Dick and then she was just writing, you know, there's a line in it where she even says, dear Dick, I've killed you. Now it's just your diary, you know, and, and she's projecting. It's about her and about her connection to writing and art more than it is about this individual. Yet this individual became, sometimes we just need to speak to someone, you know, there's a, like a line in there too, where she says, I think who gets to speak and why, and, and that yeah. it becomes a way for her to discuss why she as she says in the book, was a failure at in the art world at 40 and break down why as a study, like a case study for her for herself to to your point about Sheila Hetty, like, is her life a project? And if it is, where is this project right now? And why is it failing? And let's understand the complexities of women in the art world through speaking to you. And God, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that on that piece of writing, but to put it aside, you know, I, I do think it's a good example, and and to think about these these individuals who are in our brains in that way. My friend Deanie is an incredible writer, and she's done this show, and she has someone who probably is her version of the this person that both you and I seem to have, and when we who we run things through sometimes, and she says about him like they're still in each other's lives in some way, and she's like, you know, but when I I don't like to actually see him because every time I do, it takes it away from what it is in my brain. Mm -hmm. And in her case, he's she's writing a novel right now. And there's a character in the novel who's like, you know, loosely based or he's a muse of. And she's like, I can't really see him right now because I need it to just be what it was in my brain and where I'm projecting it. And I just thought that was so interesting. And anyway, I, I love talking about this. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I think the one thing that I just want to say, I think it's interesting, perhaps the people that are in our minds and sort of having these conversations or these influences, the versions of these people who we're in relationship with now are perhaps not even real, yeah. you know, and they become characters. And it's more about our relationship to the memory or it's sort of, you know, this idea like when you, when you <laughs> break up with somebody, right. And it's like, 
they weren't living up to the expectations that you had for them of who you wanted them to be, you know, or, or perhaps at one time who you thought that they were, you know, you sort of, I know in my experiences, like I've had boyfriends that I've wished they were otherwise, you know, and I'm hoping that they were otherwise. But once I came to the reality that they are who they are, that's sort of the tragedy of, of the breakup, right? Is that the vision that you, that you held, there's a break, you know, there's a breaking point when the yeah. reality doesn't live up to the vision with Chris Krauss, you know, Dick is of her imagination, you know, he becomes his own character separate from that of the, of the real man. And it's that sort of intersubjectivity that's the relational. That's what's so interesting about, well, it's always better in our brains, right? You know, like that's fantasy. That's a, that's like, that's a, everybody's or most people's or mine. I'll speak for myself. First addiction, right? Is to like leave the moment, leave presence is like what addiction does essentially. And when you're a kid, like it's going into this, world in your brain for a moment. And I still do that now. And and of course, no one can live up to all of your hopes and dreams. But the reality and the, the beauty of life is that what's better about someone in front of you is that they're real, <laughs> you know? And I think there's a, there's a loss to that. There's a grief to that, to let go of the fantasy in your brain. And people will surprise you and they'll also disappoint you. And what's so beautiful about these individuals who have had an impact on us is, you know, that Florence Scovel Shin quote where she says something like, no one is your friend, no one is your enemy, everyone's your teacher. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that's what this is. Like these people were everybody. We can look at everyone. If, if you're present, like the only creativity hack there is, is to be extremely present because everybody has something to teach you and something to share with you. If And it doesn't even have to be specific or specific to them. It can be your projection of what something reminds you of and what what it brings to mind. And I just think that's a really beautiful part of living. So what did you think of I Love Dick? Like, what did you think of that? Have you read... I didn't realize it was a trilogy. Have you read her other two novels? No, I haven't. And you know, I read that book probably 10 years ago. And you know what? I did not like it. I didn't understand it. And I didn't understand the project of it. I had never read anything like it. I don't think there was anything like it. Yeah. And I had sort of no introduction to it, other than perhaps that it was important in some circles, you know, and I sort of understood that it was an important work, but I didn't understand why. And I thought it to be sort of repetitive and self-indulgent. And since then, I've come to autofiction and sort of these experimental and hybrid genres. And that's really the work that I love the most is sort of the literary fiction that is sort of engaged in a question or a pursuit or an obsession. So I really should reread it now and to see what I think about it. I think I would benefit from reading it now with a little bit more context and perhaps a little bit more patience. So when I speak about it or I've read secondary works about the piece, I'm doing it from from my memory of what the work is, but my relationship to it when I read it at the time was, you know, was one of... (laughs) confusion and sort of frustration. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's really common with that particular book. (laughs) And, you know, she's a compelling writer and and, an author in person. And obviously, you know, it was made into a TV show in like 2017. And I think even prior to that, it had this cult following that became pretty mainstream when a lot of writers that 
we know and and probably people that we both know and read and follow started to talk about it. But before that, you know, when you read it, it it didn't have the a a really different perspective. And I'm so happy that it it has had it's obviously been really meaningful to me, but I just I just reread it. That's why it's so fresh in in my brain. And I want to read her next two books. And I read this incredible forward by Eileen Miles and this incredible afterward by, I forget who it's by, but the afterward is where I really learned a lot about it. And it made me, the second I finished the afterward, I was like, oh, I need to reread the book knowing all this because I didn't clock any of this. So much of it went over my head. Some really beautiful bits that are so, show how elaborate it is and show how intricate her writing is. And I I would say here, but I don't want to give it away because there's something that at the end will, I'm going to tell you after this because you've read it. So I won't spoil it, but it really made me want to finish the afterward and start reading the book again from the beginning and then read everything she's ever written. So I'm kind of been on that wormhole, which is what I, what I get into and what I love. Like that's really, you know, I think we were kind of talking about the differences in our styles of reading where I kind of get really all in on one thing and I want to reread it and talk to everyone I know about it and listen to every interview on it and really go all in. But it means I don't read like that many varying things. I'll like stay in one author, one pocket for a while. And I, I think you're, I want to get to that. I think, cause I think you're a bit different, which I really respect and admire. And I actually love our, our differences around that. But anyway, this is <laughs> this happens to be fresh in my mind. So if you do revisit it, I, I would love to to discuss it. But that's something our mutual friend Stella, <laughs> like yeah. it must have been this fall when I was either starting to reread it or, or had gotten the book. And I sent like I fired off to the group text, like, what is everybody's relationship to this text? And you know, Stella was like, oh, I hated it. And then my other friend was like, never read it. And this other friend was, you know, like, I love it. You know, it's so varied and polarizing, which is kind of the best thing to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. With that, you know, we're talking about books and reading. And, and you told me something really interesting in terms of the way we read and being alone and how reading is selfish or perceived to no reading is not selfish reading is <laughs> perceived to be selfish you said like around you know even spending your time that way and it's something done reading is solitary right like it's it's perceived to be solitary and i think you inherited your love of reading from your grandmother. So I would love to to hear about that. And then you also told me this really interesting story about the printing press and how people were afraid of oral telling stories to be gone when the printing press happened. Can you, wherever you'd like to begin within yeah. my, my long question. <laughs> yeah. The idea comes from before the printing press, before books were objects, stories were oral and they were told in community. And, you know, and I think it's sort of akin to the cell phone today, right? Or especially when cell phones became an object that everyone carried around with them, where it was conspicuously, you know, rude to be sitting in a group with your nose in a cell phone. And the same sentiment, as I as I understand it in the research I've done, the same sentiment held when suddenly there was a person in the group with their nose in a book. And 
it was a technology, you know, books are a technology that created a deep interiority with a person, you know, that a person could possess when they are in a social situation, when they are in community or in a group, as well as alone. But there's unquestionably a deep interiority in, in, in sort of the sinking into the mind, if you will. And I think that's so interesting. And I think people at that time when books were becoming more prevalent, there was sort of this anxiety, you know, of what's, what is going to be lost and, and what is at stake with this new way of relating to story and, and to experiencing story. So that's where that comes from. Um, I think that's really compelling and, you know, and just kind of reminds us too, like, it does seem like technology is ruining us, but, and, you know, and books at this point seem so wholesome, but there was a time when, when perhaps it wasn't perceived that way. And I did learn to love books from my grandmother. My grandmother used to say, why don't you curl up with a good book? And that like, <laughs> it's like the epitome of, of cozy, right? Is like just, um, you know, my grandmother with her cardigan and she had this like velvet upholstered uh, wingback chair and she would just sit and read and she volunteered at the library and she would, you know, have multiple hardcover books from the library out at one time. And I found, you know, reading to be just a really enjoyable pastime with her um, and, you know, sort of sharing that quietly with her. Do you know what some of her favorite books were? Did you ever talk about specific books with her? You know, I didn't. And, and to my memory, she was reading, I think more like mysteries, I think, and maybe even crime novels. I remember opening up one once when I was quite young and it was sort of like, it became like quite violent, you know, sort of setting up the plot and, you know, and then the woman opened the door and, you know, <laughs> like, I think, you know, she was murdered or something. And I just remember saying my grandmother was the quintessential sort of gray haired, cute grandmother. So, you know, this idea that she was reading that type of stuff, I sort of joked with her, you know, I was like kind of incredulous that she was reading books, <laughs> reading books like that. At the same time, you know, I remember seeing, I know that in my grandmother's bookshelf, there was the book by Alice Walker, or perhaps it was edited by her or something. I want to say it's a collection of other writers as well in, in our mother's garden or something like that in my mother's garden, in our mother's garden. And to my memory, I have not read it, but I, I believe it was about, it's a feminist book, you know, and probably the seventies, I want to say. And, you know, my grandmother, she was a homemaker and um, later in her life, she became more politically active and she was a Unitarian Universalist and um, and she worked at Planned Parenthood and she would check people, you know, she was sort of the receptionist. That was her, the wow. what she did later in life. And I just remember, you know, I was probably too young to tell her that I was proud of her or, <laughs> you know, to really um, to really express that other than just being aware of like, she came from a generation and I don't want to speak for her. She's no longer alive. My grandmother was very, very smart and and very, you know, astute about social justice and and things like that. And I, there have since been other books that I found that just sort of speak to the intelligence of her opinions and her ethics that perhaps I didn't know, you know, and that we didn't talk about, but that have sort of come to me through the books that I found her reading or found with her name on after you know after she had passed oh i love her <laughs> that's incredible what was her name 
Charlotte. Charlotte. Wow. Yes. Another thing we spoke about on the phone was this great conversation I, I mentioned earlier about our styles of reading and how your husband reads very differently from you and we read very differently from each other. And I think you said that you read very quickly and a lot. Can you talk about your style and does that change based on where you are in your life and what you have going on around you? I think I think I know that I sort of know the answer to that because you mentioned, you know, when you were about to launch this project, you mentioned it was a period where you obviously, you know, weren't reading as much, or maybe that's not not obvious to some people, but there's, you know, a finite amount of time in general. So I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I definitely read. I read very fast. And I believe that started, I took a debate class in high school where you're taught to read fast and you speak when you're reading, you know, for the opposition or you're sort of stating the case of the content of the debate, you know, you're reading at a at a pace that's deliberately designed to be confusing and opaque to the to the opposing team. And I think I've really taken that with me. And, you know, just being an academic and studying at the graduate level, like the amount of content that you're required to consume and digest from one week to the next is quite extraordinary. And so the ability to read quickly and and to digest information is how I've sort of been trained to read, and I would say is not conducive to actually reading novels or how I wish I was a reader. So yeah, it's this really interesting idea because I, I do read a lot and I love to read. I wouldn't say that I'm a strong reader. And to work on that, I've, I've tried to, I try to read slowly. And the amount of labor that is required for me to read slowly is really uncomfortable. And, you know, it's something that I sort of will slip out of. It's sort of like meditation, right? When you try to hold your mind free of thoughts, right? But inevitably, a thought will slip in. And, and it's sort of like that where I slip into my default mode of reading quickly. I think that I'm very good if I have a if I have a question about a a piece that I'm reading or if I'm looking for to find an answer within a book or an essay or something like if I if there's like you know I know I want to get you know if it's like I want to get the gist of this theory or want to get the gist of what they're saying or I can be very efficient and very good at doing that but when it's like I'm going to read a novel and I'm going to remember the character's name or I'm going to remember the plot of the novel a year later that's really hard for me and it sort of speaks to how I am reading more in the moment and less or perhaps sort of more superficially and and with less depth that I think is from coming comes from reading more slowly my husband as I said he reads very very slowly and he only reads um not out of principle but just I think his interest lately for the past few years has been reading the classics. And so he has read Crime and Punishment and he's read Moby Dick and he's read Dickens and Wolf and he's reading, he's reading Don Quixote right now. And, you know, he reads this, you know, the tortoise and the hare because he reads at this like, just, you know, absolutely such a slow pace, but the pages turn and the chapters go on. And, you know, within a month or two, he's, or three, you know, or more, he's done with the book. And he's read things that I've not read, especially the classics, you know, in a way that now he has this 
archive of titles that are really like of the canon that I, that uh, in some ways I'm envious of that, that I haven't read myself. And so in that way, he does inspire me to, to go on. (laughs) I do have to slow down and remind myself it's not how many books I read, you know, it's the quality of what I read, you know, the depth, the attention that I give, right? If we talk about attention as like the quote, you know, attention as a form of prayer or devotion, I think that really is my creative practice. And in a way, my spiritual practice is that, is that slowing down and really word by word. What would you say to someone who wants to read more? If you had to sum up a piece of advice. I think it would be to seek out what you love. But the second part of that question would be, well, what if I don't know what I what I love, you know, maybe, maybe that person isn't a reader and doesn't know what type of books they love. I think that that is actually such an exciting place to be because there are certain things that I've recommended to friends and I've said, oh, you know, I'm jealous that you get to read this for the first time. You know, I wish I could go back and be reading this for the first time because it was just so good. Jealous that someone gets to experience it anew. I think it would be about finding the resources, finding the people where you feel like somebody's opinion you value, right? Whose opinion do you value? Whose work do you respect? Ask them what they read. You know, what, what's your favorite book? What's a book that's changed your life? And take that recommendation and, and read it and see what it does for you, you know? And, and then where does that lead? You talk about sort of the wormhole that you go down. And I think that that's such an amazing rich, you know, wonderful experience for better or worse. The internet is a great tool for just going down a rabbit hole and seeing where you end up. Um, And I think follow those, follow those obsessions. You know, if you, if there's a book you love, right. And on the, and on the first page, there's a quote by an author you've never heard of, you know, that seems to sort of have inspired the author to write the book who's that quote by and what did they write and what did they have to say and and what's their what's their work doing so then there's a couple more books for you to read and and sort of following the path right following the breadcrumbs of what you love and and turning back when you don't like something i mean i absolutely will not finish a book if i don't like it i don't want to waste my time you know just because you pick up three books that you don't like doesn't mean that reading isn't for you yeah I often want to go back in time, have a time machine, re-say something I said in a way that I didn't want to, or, you know, relive something that I loved. And some of us want to do that for nostalgia or vanity or, you know, to relive a really great experience. I had a lot more energy when I was younger, I think. And sometimes recently I've been feeling quite unfocused, but thanks to first person, I can take a more active role in my brain's overall health. So it's a company and a product that I really genuinely love. I truly used our code and ordered more of it for myself because I love it so much. It's founded by two brothers and they saw the effects that Alzheimer's had on their father. And so they took their brain health into their own hands. And after 25 years of research and experimentation, they created First Person, which is an innovative, precision, targeted, cognitive supplement system. And they use brain boosting 
medicinal mushrooms to activate the full potential of human cognition and brain health. I really, really love it. I've been using it for a while to feel more focused. They have all different ones. They have one for sleep called Moonlight. They have one called Golden Hour that helps you feel connection and joy, and it's great for socialization. And they have one that I really, truly love and is probably my favorite. That one's called Sunbeam, and that one's for motivation and focus, and it helps maximize productivity and creativity. I take it before I do a podcast, before I'm working, and I really, truly love it. And I think you might too. So start improving your brain health and cognition with first person. Get 15% off your first order by going to getfirstperson.com and use code let it out. That's G-E-T-F-I-R-S-T-P-E-R-S-O-N.com. The code is let it out for 15% off your order. Getfirstperson.com code let it out. Thank you so much first person. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I want to turn around some of the interview questions that you've been asking other people because you've been interviewing people for So Textual. And one of the questions that I want to ask you is about this definition of the cool girl. And it's something that I think about a lot in the the gone girl, cool girl definition, but how does someone embody this cool factor to you? What does that mean to you? That sentiment came from Chelsea Mack when we interviewed her. And I think I think I asked her that question because she had it on her website and it was sort of like, you know, clothes for the cool girl. Totally, and I, asked, yeah. I asked her, you know, what does the cool girl mean to you? And so I love that you're asking me that because I just wrote a bit of copy for the site for our submissions page and just trying to give people who might want to write for us a sense of the brand. And I think that I had originally wrote, you know, it is a cool girls club, but everyone's welcome. And a managing editor said, you know, Jenny, you might want to put, I think it should be, it is a cool club and everyone's welcome. And that's sort of where we ended up, right? And and so this idea of like, what is cool, right? I mean, it, what is cool is people's own authenticity and the pursuit of what authentically lights them up. You know, that's really the heart of like what what we love, like if you love something, whether it's like calligraphy, glass blowing, or reading 16th century poetry, like that passion is can be contagious. So tell me what it is you love about that thing because I'm so interested because I don't get it. I don't I don't read, you know, classical poetry. I don't understand it. It sort of seems opaque and and it doesn't ring any bells for me, right? But to have someone who is moved by that, someone who loves opera, for instance, right? People obsess over opera. And at this point in time, I haven't understood what it is that's so compelling or or really haven't had that conversion experience. But I'm open to someone trying to convert me, in fact. And it's, you know, I may even ask somebody, tell me, what is it about opera that that you just love? What does it do for you? How? Why? What opera would you recommend that I really listen to? Can you give any sort of insight into, you know, how can I prepare myself to to be changed, you know, to be influenced or to be moved, right? I think that's yeah. an authentic and beautiful way to approach any piece of art. But so, right. you know, we, we understand that 
for so textual as like that's the that's cool you know if you have that in anything like tell us about it because we think it's cool yeah you know I think there's a great poem that someone has sent me many people have sent me about I think it's called warm and it, it's about you know I've spent so much time trying to be cool as we all have right and that gone girl definition of cool which is like trying to fit into something. And I think what actually, what we're perceiving as cool to the people we put on pedestals often is someone being specific, someone being unafraid to be themselves or be different. And I was describing someone to my friend Isabel over the phone a couple, maybe like a year or more ago. And I was just explaining trying to describe this person. I just kept saying, they're so cool. They're so cool. And she was like, I think every time you're explaining someone who you say is cool, all that means is that they have a relaxed nervous system. Like they're managing their nervous system well. And to you, that means cool. It's someone who's able to be in their body, to be present, to show up as themselves and be unafraid of what people think. And she's like, you're someone who has anxiety and has all these like, you know, mental health situations that you manage so you can be to other people, they might perceive you as that, you know, it doesn't, it's, again, it goes back to projection and and dynamics and how we feel about ourselves. And it's really so much about everybody is cool. Everyone has something to offer. Everyone has something to teach us, but it's that acceptance of who we are and how we are and not trying to be what we are. And that's this poem that is called warm. You know, I I remember reading that and being like, Oh, I'm not cool. I'm, I'm warm. I am, you know, very friendly and Midwestern and I'm never going to be mysterious like an Olsen twin. I'm never, you know, (laughs) and I can try to like keep that jig up in my Instagram and make it, you know, this, kind of odd amalgamation of things that I wish that I was, or I could just be like, all right, well, this is who I am this time around. And like, I'm the kind of person who is maybe not going to be the coolest person to have around, but, you know, I'll pick you up from the goddamn airport and I'll, you know, tell you everything and listen, you know, it's like, and, and I think that that's comes with age. <laughs> you know, I think it's harder to have the acceptance of being warm when you're, when you're younger, but I, and it's hard for me right now and I'm not that young. So, but you have this wonderful piece about Adrian Linker on so textual and, you know, and she's a brilliant artist and writer and, and someone whose voice is particularly literary, as you say, and you talk about her songs. And I loved this connection that you made and, I'm wondering if you could talk about that piece because I loved the the songs that you unpacked and there's a New Yorker profile that is incredible and you refer to it. So I know you, you know it as well. And you mentioned how Carly Rae Jepsen once articulated accurately about Lanker and she called her confessional. And I always, to, you know, to our earlier point about I love Dick, I think confessional is such an interesting word to use around work that women make because I think I heard Chris Krause say, you know, someone said, I love Dick was secreted more than it was read. And that almost sounds like it 
it was easy to make or something. It wasn't literary in a way. And so I think sometimes confessional can be perceived as not good. Where in, you know, in the case of Adrian Lincoln for sure. And I think with Chris Cross, it's actually incredibly smart and beautiful. And anyway, so I, I would love if you could talk about that piece a little bit. Yeah. Well, you're reminding me that someone, my friend who is very important to me, once said that, you know, confession is only interesting to the extent that the stakes involved are compelling, right? So it's this idea that, you know, the confession itself is less interesting than what makes the confession dangerous or sinful (laughs) or juicy. And I think that was a really nice distinction that's been helpful for me in just thinking about you know, from, a, from perhaps a craft perspective in writing fiction. I think the thing with Adrienne Lenker's voice is her voice is haunting in a way that when I first listened to it, I wanted to know why. And she almost sounds, I mean, it's, it's this incredible sadness that you feel listening to this very beautiful sound. And I think that's the power of music, right? Is that with or without lyrics, it is affecting. It affects a feeling, a sentiment, memories, emotion that no other art medium, and maybe some will disagree with me, but in my opinion, music sort of stands alone in some ways on this is just that it can cause someone to dance, to want to move their body. Literature doesn't do that. We don't sit and read and suddenly find ourselves (laughs) moving. It can bring great joy and it can also bring great sadness and heartache and just through sonority. So that was sort of my first introduction to her was just, wow, this is haunting. And who is the woman of this haunting? Yeah, well, I'll link to that piece because I really, I really enjoyed it and made me want to read the New Yorker profile on her again. Cause yeah. I have a, that's another thing I reread profiles on people because I love the art of the, profile. You know, I think what I do with podcasting is like the very easy version of that, like the the novice version of that. When the, the what's hard is spending, you know, years with someone and writing something so complex and textured of of someone and really getting in there. Yeah, she's an interesting one. And I would say that she is very, you know, so textual could write and engage with her music in other ways as well. You know, she warrants she warrants more investigation and more time spent with her because she is a songwriter for people with a literary sensibility, for sure. Yeah. You have a beautiful journal on your site that I picked out a few bits from I I wanted to talk about. And and one of them is you have this, this quote that says, the body is a contact sheet with a nervous system. Mm. And I loved that. And it sort of relates to what Isabel told me. And I want to read another, a bit of this, but you say... At risk of becoming obsolete, the contact sheet was a tool for film photographers, a record of shooting, a tool for editing, and an index to archive negatives. The sheet embodies so much appeal, the sense of time unfolding, the traceable movements occurring within the space of the frame, and the raw authenticity of photography's aspiration as an art form to give a transparent representation of reality. I loved Mm. that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Speaking of rabbit holes and wormholes, I went down one a few years ago 
I discovered affect theory. And um, I was joking with someone actually at the at the party in LA that where I met you, I was talking with someone because in the first minute of our conversation, they mentioned affect theory. And I almost fell over because I have <laughs> never met anyone who has mentioned affect theory, let alone in the first minute of meeting them. And we choked because it's like someone said, you know, what's affect theory? And we both laughed because it's like the thing about affect theory is that no one understands what it is. So there's this wonderful anthropologist. She's a she's a professor and an anthropologist, um, Kathleen Stewart. And goodness, I cannot remember how I discovered her book. But her first book, or sorry, her, I believe it's her second book, Ordinary Affect, I think it's called, Kathleen Stewart. It's a very strange little vignettes, little stories. And in her introduction, which is the most compelling and beautiful and opaque description of affect, she talks about things that shimmer, right? When an idea shimmers, when you lock eyes with someone, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, it's that, it's that feeling of, you know, missed connection and recognition. And what she's really arguing for is the, is the extraordinary within the ordinary. And these sort of moments of everyday life that feel mundane, it's like you go to the DMV and you're not expecting anything to happen, right? But something magical may happen or something sort of odd may happen that charges the room and everyone can feel it, right? You you know, maybe perhaps no words are said, but everyone is thinking the same thing or feeling the same thing, perhaps feeling uncomfortable or stifling a laugh. And it's that charge that she speaks of and that she writes of um, these moments. And you begin to see, you know, wow, you know, I've overlooked that so many times or, you know, that didn't seem relevant. You know, it came through my I processed it, you know, I was cognizant of it, but, you know, I filtered it, filtered it through because, because I was driving or, or because I was trying to listen to the conversation, you know, that I was having. But what Kathleen Stewart has really helped me learn to do and sort of develop the sensibility for is for picking out these things that are just little gems that get swept away in ordinary life. You know, it says here, I'm just reading the, um, the back of the book, but she focuses on the poetics and politics of language and landscape to ponder how ordinary impacts, you know, so that's interesting that impacts is a noun, create the subject as a capacity to affect and be affected. So, you know, if you think of yourself as like a bumper car, right, and sort of everything that you touch, everything that you bump into or encounter, you have, it has a resonance. And so, if you think about everything that is bumping into you and you're subsequently bumping into other things just in the world, you know, what is that resonance? And, and she sort of speaks of that. And so it's very, you know, it's um, incredibly like, (laughs) it's difficult to articulate and it's confusing, but it's that confusion that I really love. She talks about the intensities and banalities of common experiences and strange encounters, half spied scenes and the lingering resonance of passing events. So that quote about the contact sheet was from her. And, you know, this idea that we are a contact sheet with a nervous system. Affect theory really made me aware of, you know, the ways that we can sort of have tunnel vision. Even in this conversation, I'm very much focused on you. But 
if I sort of round out my experience, you know, I can hear the sound coming through the open window and I can feel my body sitting in the chair. I can sort of open myself up to these other things going on. And I think that's really what affect theory has done for me. And it's interesting because it's, it is an embodied philosophy. It is an embodied theory where it's, it feels participatory and immediate. And yet it's also so loaded and charged with memory and history and experience as well as that of other people who you engage with. Wow. I'm sure you weren't expecting like, like that answer. Something I feel so intrigued by. And yet, you know, sort of the more I read, the more questions I have and the less certain I am about it, but it's a wonderful sort of, it's a wonderful discipline. And I do encourage anyone to, to just check it out because you know what, it just makes the world, it makes the world feel magical in a really beautiful way. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. You have this other quote in one of the motifs on, on your site where you say, this is a, someone that you're quoting and you say, art is the pure realization of religious feeling, capacity for faith, longing for God. The ability to believe is our most outstanding quality and only art adequately translates it into reality. And I think that so beautifully encompasses affect theory that you just spoke about and everything we've really spoken about today. And you mentioned that you studied religion and also literature. And we usually talk about what happens when we die here and God. And and I loved that quote. So I'd love to know how you relate to it and what is it that you believe and where you feel your intersection between spirituality and art and faith is today. You know, I say I went to divinity school and I studied religion and I did so in undergrad as well. But really what I studied, and there's a distinction that I love, is is I studied the religious. So I'm I'm actually quite ignorant about religious tradition and history and sort of the distinction between, you know, the kind of the nitty-gritty of Judaism and Islam and, you know, all the denominations of Christianity. And really what I was what I was studying was this vein of of religious studies that I think exists at the intersection of philosophy and anthropology, or at least that's how it manifested because of the the professors that I had who were philosophers and anthropologists. And so the questions that I was thinking about were, you know, were political and existential and eschatological as well as, you know, pertaining to questions of the church or of sort of of history or politics, like sort of as, as sort of dictated by the church in American culture, the Christian church in American culture. One of the classes that I took in undergrad was a dance class that was cross-registered with the religious studies department. And we read Patti Smith's Just Kids. And the music that we were engaging with was Patti Smith's music from Patti Smith's Horses, her first album. And that class changed my life because it was a way of thinking about very large themes like love or democracy. And how does that manifest in the body? And what does that look like as a movement? You know, all while reading Just Kids and and learning about the bohemian life of Patti Smith and Robert Mablethorpe. And so religion, as I'm interested in it, and as I feel very 
enmeshed within is very much along that of, of affect theory in that there's this ineffable quality to life that absolutely intrigues me. And it's that that I love, that I, you know, I love, I love that which, you know, you can begin to articulate, but then words fail, you know, or that you can sense through a painting that, that perhaps illuminates just a bit, you know, before it obscures itself again. You know, those moments of awe, which is a religious affectation, you know, which is a religious feeling, you know, we can have that in moments that where we're not in church, of course, you know, we can have that in museums and in galleries, you know, works of art can bring us to tears, they can change our lives. It, But it's that feeling and it's that sort of power of something more that I'm really interested in. So did you grow up with religion and did you, do you have a, a faith practice now? Why did you want to study that? The reason why I decided to study it was because I, I grew up agnostic. And when I was perhaps 13, I asked my dad to bring me to church. And he did. He would drop me off at Sunday school and he would pick me up after. And I did become a Christian. And, you know, it was something that I felt that I wanted and sort of needed. And I did believe in God. I grew up an only child. And I think there was something about me that loved the community aspect of religion. And as I knew it as a child was Christianity, going to church on Sunday. That's that type of thing. I did end up sort of losing my faith. And Jordan Kissner in her book, Places, describes it perfectly where she talks about, you know, kind of the same experience. And she just says, to put it simply, you know, God left. And it was sort of this feeling of like, you know, I used to pray and I used to feel like God was there. And and then that stopped happening. And sort of it was like the disenchantment of my teenage years or something like that. And now I would say that I am agnostic, but I think, you know, I I think faith is beautiful and faith and belief are very different. You know, faith is a faith is an uphill battle. I think the suspension of disbelief is a beautiful practice. You know, what would it be if I believed this? Sometimes sincerity isn't necessary for ritual and for religious faith. You know, we don't necessarily need to believe that the wine is the blood of Christ or, you know, you go through these these rituals with community and sincerity doesn't need to be a part of it necessarily, but it can have meaning beyond that. I do believe in all of those things and I I feel very millennial in that, you know, I'm busy on Sundays and I don't prioritize religion. It doesn't seem to have an immediate value for me And so it gets pushed to the side, but, you know, to imagine having a community of people who are spiritual or who are asking these questions, perhaps like a Unitarian Universalist church or something like that. I see that as being um, as compelling and and interesting and politically valuable, but at the moment, it's not a part of my life. Yeah. I think a lot of us are having these questions, right? In terms of throwing the baby out with the bathwater with religion and there's a lot of problematic bits in in every sort of denomination and there's a lot of beautiful bits in every sort of denomination i think a great practice is take what you like and leave the rest with everything but a lot of us you know also an only child but grew up very in catholic school and all of that it was very not self-directed as yours was was just sort of integrated into my existence and not not a choice and I read an article this weekend about Catholicism having a comeback and having have the just I think we're a lot of us are starved for 
connection, connection to each other and relationships that aren't transactional and relationships that are earnest and connective and finding that outside of religion. And then, you know, maybe circling back to it, who knows, it's fascinating. And anyway, speaking of friendship and connection, you recently published a piece on So Textual about Eve Babbitt. And I want to read a quote from it. And it's a quote from her that you ended the piece with. And I really want to talk about community and and friendship as it relates to this line. And this is a surprise for you, but I want to end with a couple questions. I pulled some of our mutual friends that they they sent in for you. So I'm going to read this quote and I'd love to hear about how you relate to it in your style of friendship. But this is the quote from Eve. I did not become famous, but I got near enough to smell the stench of success. It smelled like a burnt cloth of rancid gardenias. And I realized the truly awful thing about success is that it's held up all of those years as the thing that will make everything all right. And the only thing that makes things even slightly bearable is a friend who knows what you're talking about. I love that so much. I feel like it relates to even the earlier bit of our conversation about wanting to share things with each other and people. And so what is your greatest lesson on community and friendship? And what is your style of friendship? Oh, yeah, that's such a good... I love that, you know, and it's sort of actually, it's a hard thing for me to talk about in some ways, because I think to be completely honest, I would say that I'm at a point in my life where I am in between friends. And perhaps we spoke about this on the phone, or I've been talking with other people about it. I'm at a place where, you know, I'm comfortable letting some friendships go. There is something to be said about fighting for people, about maintaining connection and putting in the effort There is something to be said about working on a relationship, right? Not every relationship is easy or perfect, but, you know, there's also times when friendships need to be let go. And we've been living where where we are now for about three years and community has been really important to us because we've wanted to set down roots. Um, We don't have family nearby. and, um, And so we were aware moving here that, you know, creating our chosen family and our community would be, would be really important. I think the pandemic, you know, definitely made that a little bit more difficult, you know, and I'm also someone who greatly values being alone. And as a mother and, you know, as a married person, I I don't always get those times alone. And so what's at this point in my life, what I would say is that what's so valuable to me are probably the three friendships that I have with people whom I don't talk to every day, not even once a week. But those people who across time and and space, we hold something for each other that feels old and that feels solid and that feels really mutually beneficial and valuable and meaningful. And it's it's those connections when I when we do pick up the phone, you know, and this idea of calling an old friend, that feels incredibly enriching to me. And so I think the thing about friendships, right, is that it is an affirmation of the self. We're in relationship with other people in a way that affirms who we are, as well as perhaps challenges us to grow and become better and and all of those things. But And at this point in my life, it's really about the few friends that I have who, um, who are really such gems of people that's really sustaining me 
in this time when I'm when I'm quite busy, when I'm when I'm working on so textual or when I need to just be alone to write or when it's been a you know a day of cooking and cleaning. So yeah, I I love that quote as well. And it's good to have a lot of friends, I think. You know, I mean, in some ways I'm envious of people who do have a lot of friends, you know, and the 12 bridesmaids and the, you know, <laughs> the like all the contacts and things like that. But for me, it's just, it's that really tight, small group of people who just really are so, such gems to me. Speaking of a friendship, so our mutual friend Maddie asked a question, and I think it's such a great one because she's incredible. Our friend Maddie Coleman, who has an incredible newsletter and is one of the smartest people I know. She asked, if you consider yourself a narrative person, she asked the question to to both of us. And I I don't know, I got to contemplate it, but she made the comparison between Nora Ephron, who would think of herself as a, a narrative led person. And so I'll offer that to you. You know, what does that mean to you? Do you think of yourself as a narrative read person since reading and books is so much part of your life as we've talked about? Yeah, I think that I do. I think that I can't help but draw connections and find a thread and conceptualize this the story. And again, if my life is a project, then it does have a narrative. You know, it has a destination. It, it is a journey. It's such a wonderful question because I've never heard it before, actually. And I think the way my mind works, I can't conceive of my life being anything other than narrative. Mm, I love that. Wow. Well, I can't believe we've been talking for two full hours at this point. And I want to keep talking to you, but I'm going to ask you our rapid fire questions and you can just say sort of the first thing that that comes to mind, but maybe, you know, take your time with it as much as you, as much as you can. Um, How does that sound? Great. Okay. So some of these I've taken from you, which is this first one. What's your favorite spot to read? In bed. What's the best book you've ever been given? Or a book that you give a lot, if that comes to mind first. Yes. The best book that I always give and that I collect copies of so that I can give them away is Amy Hempel's collection of short stories. Mm, Cool. I've never read it. It's great. You seem like someone who is so introspective and you're obviously so creative. What are you learning and contemplating and inspired by right now? Honestly, I think it's that I want to leave a mark of some kind. I want to accomplish something that's of value to other people. Mm. I recently had the artist Kimmy Quillen on the show, and we talked about how she incorporates chance into her art. And so I'll ask you that too. How do you incorporate chance or serendipity into everything you make? I think that my process is actually twofold in that I do much like Agnes Martin, you know, lie in bed and just sort of wait for the epiphany to come. And when it comes, that's it. And that's the thing. And that's what I set out to execute. And so in the process, you know, the physical process, there is no serendipity. But the idea is entirely open to the muse, quote unquote, Mm. the muse. What have you learned about yourself making this particular project of So Textual? That I've found the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. What's your greatest lesson on creativity 
and productivity and process? My greatest lesson comes from the artist Anne Truitt, who has a series of journals, one of which is Daybook, my favorite, and she speaks about her children. She was a single mother and a working artist, and she talks about the moment that she switched from thinking of her children as burdens to her work or or obstacles or impediments to the work that she had to do to actually being tools for the work itself. And that paradigm shift of thinking about all the obstacles in my day that prevent me from sitting down at my desk and doing the creative work that I want to do are actually fuel for my creativity. Oh, I really like that. That's great. And everyone has that, whether you're a parent or not, there's so many focus fractures that you can look at as fractures and focus, or you can look at as detours into inspiration. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned a journal. Do you write? Do you journal? I think we spoke about this. Do you have a writing practice that's consistent, that's writing for emotional wellness? I used to. And it used to be very cathartic. And perhaps it's a judgment of mine that I've switched it to be more intellectual and more ideas based. You know, I think that there's, I think, I think there is sort of a withholding to not open my journal and say, you know, today I feel this. And to instead write, you know, today I read this or notes, you know, words I don't know or, or notes from something I've read. I think both are very valuable and they've both served me well over the years. Mm, Yeah. What's the greatest lesson that you've learned on, you mentioned your husband on romantic relationships. That the other person is their own person completely independent of you. I think it sounds so simplistic, but in practice, I think it's hard, especially in romantic relationships where you develop this vision of the future and you want the other person to align to that vision and, and really letting that other person be who they are as if you're sort of floating down the river in two different boats, holding hands. (laughs) I love that. So good. What is your favorite part of your life right now? I think it's the space that I've created with my family. I think as it's manifested in our home, we are lucky enough to have a house and we live on an acre of land in the country, two hours north of New York City. And it is the dream that I've always wanted. And I have my floor to ceiling bookshelves and I have, you know, a chair outside that I can go sit out in in the sun and read. And it's just such a privilege and um, a dream come true. And it's just, it's uh, still unbelievable to me. Yeah, that does sound like a dream come true. Oh my gosh. I'm just like, wow, I got to house it last month and I, my friend's place has more than one room and outside space. And I was like, wow. It's really nice to have variance in location and nature. And that sounds really, really nice. I love that. Is there anything that you're working on personally or professionally or something that you creatively, anything that you're in process with? Yes, there's a lot. I'm always in process. I always have multiple projects at once. And I think actually the pivot helps me to be able to work on one project and pivot to a next And it also helps with procrastination because if I don't want to work on something, there's something else to be done. So I do have this reverence for productivity, for better or worse. And um, I am someone who always needs to be productive. So I do have many projects. One of them, you know, which I, which I love because it's so quiet and it's just in the background is my novel. And it's definitely slow going, but it 
does feel so alive within me. And it does feel like something that needs to be written. And, you know, I don't write every day, but it's, it's something that I'm just, you know, slowly but steadily making progress. And then the second thing is that I want to do more creative work um, and perhaps, you know, in an agency setting. And so I'm, I am thinking about what it would be like to start an, a creative agency. And that feels really exciting to me as well. Cool. I like to think of these conversations as time capsules. So with where you are today, what wishes and hopes and dreams do you have for your newest project? So textual, what's your vision there? Anything that you can share? And then, you know, when you come back two years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, we can listen back to this. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on a very basic level, and I think this is maybe something that's not always spoken about with businesses. And at the beginning of our conversation, I spoke about brands as this exciting creative vision and helping founders, you know, create the vision they that they dream of. But Right now, a, a huge goal to find is making the project financially sustainable. And I think that that's a really real thing. And it's been a learning curve for sure. And so that's really my first goal with the project. And like I said, I think that I really, I really want So Textual to feel like a resource. I want someone to say, you know, if one person, <laughs> wakes up and says, oh, you know, I finished my book last night and I don't know what to read. What should I read? And they say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go and check out SoTextual. I'm going to log into SoTextual.com or I'm going to go on the Instagram. I'm going to see what they're reading and recommending. That would have been a success. And so that's really what I'm hoping for is that it can become a resource that people, that people use and that people value. Well, congratulations for making it truly. I know so much inspiration and so much of you went into this project and I'm so happy for you and I'm so happy that it exists. And thank you so much for coming on the show and for reaching out and wanting to connect with me and inviting me to your party. And I'm so grateful to to know you and to connect with you. So do you feel like you let it out? Is there anything, did you let it out all the way? Is there anything else that you wish that I would have asked that you never get to talk about? Do you want to recommend anything, art, book, food, movie, place, you know, it can be literally anything that's coming to mind. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Oh, I mean, this has just been so great. And your questions have been so thoughtful and, and really helping me to reflect on on the why in the very beginning of why I have ended up here. I think that I mentioned Amy Hempel, and she's the reason why I became a writer. And her stories actually, they're unlike any other stories I had encountered. And they I read her first story. It's called In a Tub, and it's a page and a half. It really showed me what a story could do and what a what a short story could be. And so I recommend I recommend her collection of stories, and specifically her um, it's her first book of stories, Reasons to Live, that were really incredible and that changed my life. So I recommend her. She's a wonderful woman. She's still living. She teaches at a, a couple universities, creative writing and. Her work is just stunning. So that would be my recommendation if someone wants to read a book of mine that's changed my life. It's Amy Hempel's collection of short stories. Oh, I'm really excited about that. I, <laughs> I just wrote it down and I've never heard of her. And I, I was just having a conversation this morning with my friend Zoe about 
<laughs> I was this is funny. I was having a conversation with my friend Zoe about a conversation I'd had with my friend Jake last night. And he was telling me about how he just has this new studio and he was recommended something by a friend and it ended up being this great conversation where they were keeping each other inspired. And that made me think of my really close friend Zoe and how we do that with each other. And and we were having a really challenging week separately, just a lot of shit, you know, as we all have. And we kind of hugged at the end of like us hanging out in the thick of this. And and we were just like, God, this is this is hard. This is rough. <laughs> like we're gonna be okay. Kind of a very sweet cinematic moment. And and I was like, well, how can I help you, Zoe? Like, like, how can I help you? And she's like, well. And she really paused for a while and she was like, you know, I think it's, we just got to keep each other inspired. When Jake was explaining that story, I was like, oh, that's why you're feeling so good and happy right now. Cause your friend, you did the thing Zoe and I do. It's keeping each other inspired. And, and you just did it with me, this entire conversation. And especially what you recommended the book of short stories and, and the specificity of why it inspires you. That's it, right? It's sharing like, here's this thing that made an impact on me. I want to share that with you and maybe talk about it, maybe not. And I always feel my best when I'm wrestling with something creatively, or I have an idea that I move the needle forward on, or I tell someone about, or I just read something related to it. That's always us at our best. I believe, you know, there's that really great quote from, I think it's from braiding the sweet grass where it's like, talking about nature and human beings relationship to nature. And it's like, what we have is story, you know, and telling our stories and I'm not saying it well, but anyway, thank you so much for, sh- for sharing all you did in your story and this book of short stories. And I'm really happy to know you and hopefully we can keep each other inspired. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. This was such a pleasure. Well, let's end taking a deep breath together and letting it out. Inhale, let it out. Ah, that always feels better. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, that was my conversation with Jenny Edgar. She is the founder of So Textual. Take a look. We talked about it a bit. Look at her journal on her website that we spoke about as well. And I link to my friend Maddie Coleman's newsletter. Maddie asked that great question about whether or not we think of ourselves as narrative people. So that's a question to ask yourself too. And if you want more questions to ask yourself or journaling prompts, we have the right kit, which is based off of my book, which is called Let It Out, just like this show. And it's full of journaling prompts, self-inquiry prompts to get to the corners of your mind that might be dusty, that you haven't explored and maybe learn something about yourself and develop some more self-awareness. I find journaling incredibly useful, which is why I made the right kit. So I'll make a discount code for that right now, which will be midsummer, because I think of this holiday weekend as the middle of the summer. And then after this, it flies by. So I hope you had a good holiday weekend. I cannot believe that it's uh, July. If you're listening to this, the day came out. And I'll be back next week with a fresh episode. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you're still listening right now, wow that's incredible and maybe you liked this show so feel free to share it with a friend that really really helps or of course supporting the sponsors just 
clicking on them, checking them out, maybe even trying them. But that also helps. And of course, you know, I can't believe I'm still asking this, but leaving the reviews on iTunes and rating on Spotify, it all really does genuinely help so much. So if you are still here and you've been here and you're wanting to help, that that would be great. Okay. Well, I love you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you to Jenny for coming on the show. I am so excited to read that short story that she just spoke about. And and it's really lovely connecting with her on the internet and through this conversation. And I hope you enjoyed eavesdropping on it. Okay. Talk to you next week. Bye.